On Monday, which was July 3rd, Saudi Arabia followed through with its threat to reduce production even further. They had announced back in June that they were going to cut production in July by 1 million barrels per day to try to stabilize oil prices, which up to that point wanted to continue lower. Not only did oil prices want to go lower, we know they wanted to go lower because the, the curve shape, especially in the United States, the WTI futures curve, moved into contango and stubbornly stayed there regardless of what had, what transpired on the supply side in the global system. So Saudi Arabia this earlier this week, July 3rd, said, we're going to cut production. We're going to send our production cut another month into August, which had a limited impact on the futures curve immediately. But then yesterday, Friday, July 7th, the futures curve prices started to go up a little bit and the futures curve moved out of contango into backwardation, just as the Saudis were hoping to accomplish. Except we saw this before, back in March, when OPEC announced its, its round of production cuts, that, again, weak oil prices, contango on the curve, briefly moved higher and into backwardation before global demand problems finally overwhelmed all those supply considerations, and oil prices have been largely sideways to lower ever since. So what the Saudis are doing, even though the WTI curve is now in fully is now fully backwardated, they're telling us that they're going to match supply with demand. So as they cut more and more supply to try to stabilize oil prices around $70 a barrel in the United States, they're telling us that future demand must be shrinking as much as future supply is, confirming recession, confirming recession in a way that lower oil prices would have if the Saudis would let oil prices to go go further. But in many ways, what they're doing is self-defeating too, because if we are facing a global recession and all the markets say that we are, then by holding oil prices artificially higher through re supply reductions, they're essentially harming their customers who are struggling to begin with. By increasing energy prices that would otherwise go lower and help help with demand problems, they're continuing those demand problems by artificially keeping oil prices high, which eventually will mean weaker demand, therefore weaker oil prices, which means more production cuts from Saudi Arabia and others, and round and round we go. It's self-defeating because the issue here remains weak demand. And what we saw this week in a whole bunch of places and a whole bunch of data shows us exactly why, including one that maybe not, not many people are watching. I'm talking about Japan. Japan, if you go by recent news and recent uh, stories about what's going on there, especially those that contain the word Nikkei in them, as in the Nikkei stock market index, you would think that Japan is either booming or set to boom because stock prices there, at least the stock price index, have has risen to a level we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time, which suggests, as most people are told, high stock prices, the economy must be doing well. Yet, we're seeing the exact opposite. Even though whispers continue, not just in the stock market, but surrounding the Bank of Japan having to restrain the Japanese economy by actually hiking rates for the first time since 2006. So Japan, out of all the major economies around the world, and Japan is still a major economy despite its lost decades, plural, Japan has been the one that everybody said, that's they're going to do fine even if there's questions in Europe, even if there's 
problems in China, which we know, even if the U.S. doesn't hold up to its end of the bargain with its labor market that looks weaker and weaker by the day. Japan was the one that was going to be rather good and, and continuously good. Yet, like oil prices that are supposed to be all about supply, Japan's economy has stumbled really badly in a way that really makes you makes you stand up and wonder what is really going on here. Now we understand why the Saudis are doing what they're doing. And it's not just Japan. We also got credit data from the United States and the banking system, which there's going to be even more fallout here in the U.S. So demand in oil prices, you can understand why that's the overriding concern. So let's talk about what happened in Japan. Let's talk about what's going on in the U.S. banking system. Let's understand what the Saudis are at least attempting to do, though we shake our head at whether or not they're going to accomplish it. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're interested, Eurodollar University has memberships available where we have exclusive video content on the Eurodollar system. What is the Eurodollar system? It's actually the global reserve currency system. What is it supposed to do? How is it supposed to do it? And why isn't it doing what it's supposed to do? We also have research subscription. I do a daily briefing in partnership with MarketsInsiderPro.com. I also do a deep dive where we dive deep into all of these topics, money and macro. What's really going on here? What is it that you aren't hearing from the mainstream? What do we make of everything that's going on and why? All the information on memberships as well as research subscriptions, you can find that at our website, which is conveniently located at Eurodollar.University. The Japanese economy, that was, we keep hearing these rumors, these persistent rumors, no matter what happens, that because Japanese, the Japanese economy has experienced consumer price acceleration for the first time in decades, and not because of quantitative easing, by the way, but because of the supply shock and CPIs in Japan had been relatively robust, there was the thought that maybe the Bank of Japan was actually going to be forced to join its global counterparts in raising interest rates to restrain this economy that apparently won't be restrained when that had nothing to do with consumer prices. And as I mentioned before in a previous video, consumer prices in Japan, those actually were materially weaker than expected recently. And now we know why that was the case, because if these numbers are to be believed, Japan is in a boatload of trouble, which not surprising to us because though the Nikkei market has skyrocketed recently, Japan's other market, the one that most people tend to ignore, which is JGBs or government bonds, and there's reasons why you should ignore government bonds, except the long end of the JGB curve has correlated very well with economic circumstances, not just in Japan, but also as they relate to China and global trade and global monetary conditions, swapping out into and out of dollars as the Japanese financial system tends to do. And ever since January, long-term global, long-term Japanese government bonds, JGBs, those yields have been trending lower, which said, whatever the stock market's doing, we don't like what's going on in Japan as well as everything else related to Japan, including trade with China, reopening, failing there. The statistics the Japanese put out recently were on household spending and in particular, household income. Household spending and both, both household spending and household income, those had been rising like consumer price numbers in nominal terms but only up until around December and January. Since then, nominal spending has gone lower as real spending 
Real spending, first of all, was basically flat and now it's gone lower too. So we have Japanese consumers, just like their American counterparts, starting to slow down in nominal spending, reduce spending in real terms, though the Japanese have taken it up a notch because nominal spending is actually contracting at a, at a decent rate. In the month of May, the latest numbers we got, real household spending was down 1.5% month over month. Nominal household spending was down 1% in May, and it is down 4.7% since January. So a big decline in nominal spending in Japan among two or more person households, which not just on goods and goods, but also including services, tells you the Japanese economy from the perspective of consumers and households, that's not going the way of the stock market. In fact, it's going the opposite way. And with nominal spending declining as well as real spending, companies in Japan and, and service providers in Japan are, going, are not going to have the same nominal cushion that they had, even though volumes and real adjusted and adjusted for prices numbers have gone lower. So while the reason spending has gone down is because incomes, incomes have struggled mightily. In in the month of May, these are just disastrous numbers. I mean, truly, it's nominal nominal disposable personal income that fell by six point two percent. Nominal spending, nominal income fell by six point two percent. Not year over year, not over a year, not over several months, but in May alone, since December. Nominal disposable personal income in Japan is down 8%. Nominal. 8% reduction in incomes. Real In real terms, real disposable income, that's down 6.3% month over month in May. So a huge decline all across the board in May in incomes. And it's down 9% just since December. So just in 2023. So as the, as the Japanese economy is supposed to be heating up and continue its inflationary booming trend... Income suggests it's doing the exact opposite. Like China's reopening, Japan's economy is further and further falling apart and doing so in a way that would look like what the Saudis are looking at when they say, hmm, demand for oil doesn't seem to be keeping up. We have to continue to cut supplies. And if this Japanese statistics are more, are, are more representative than just a one-month aberration, and I think they are because, again, Though the one month, the declines in May are substantial and huge, the trend here is in that same direction anyway. But either, either way, what we're looking at for Japan's economy is the same sort of accelerating deterioration that we're detecting in many places around the world. Though, admittedly, this one is an extreme one. But it's an extreme one that is consistent in its direction, if not quite its intensity, with, again, what we see around the rest of the world. So... The Japanese economy as a potential bellwether, but it's also important because Japan was supposed to be the one that we weren't supposed we weren't going to be talking about as far as recession. Not only are these recession numbers all year in Japan, this is really ugly May statistics, which which proposes all sorts of bad stuff ahead. The same is true when we look at the U.S. banking system, the credit crunch. The credit crunch continues to develop and continues to get worse, actually, despite the fact that nobody's talking about the banking system anymore. Ever since First Republic failed, the banking system has just fallen off of everybody's radar because without bank failures, we're taught the banking system must be fine. Either banks are failing and something's wrong or banks are not failing and everything is just fine and good. Well, 
The Federal Reserve's H8 data on the commercial banking system shows that everything is far from good. In fact, very little has changed since the middle of March when Silicon Valley Bank failed. And that's a huge problem because we need everything to change and go back to the way it was before to have any chance of avoiding a worse than mild recession. Even the Fed says we're going to have a mild recession. These credit statistics show, like the inverted yield curves, it's going to be worse than a mild recession. Here's why. Bank credit fell by another $23 billion in the latest weekly data, which is at the, up to the end of June. Since middle of March, bank credit, which is all the assets and the credit assets, including debt and loans that banks, the commercial banking system in the United States owns, that's down $270 billion, down in absolute numbers since the middle of March. And since we need bank credit to continuously expand, the the hole that the credit system is, is find itself in is even bigger than $270 billion. It's down $270 billion from where it was in March. And then it's, it's however many billions and hundreds of billions of less than where credit should be if there hadn't been that, bank inter, that banking crisis interruption. Now, up until this point, banks have been largely selling securities to raise cash. But that didn't happen in the, in the final couple of weeks of June. Actually, their holdings of securities increased by $4 billion. But since the middle of March, holdings of securities are down almost $200 billion. It's really loans and leases that we need to be focused on and really concerned about. First of all, loans and leases fell in the latest week by almost $26 billion from the week before. And they're down almost $50 billion since the middle of March. So again, no increase in credit, no increase in loans and lending from the banking system ever since Silicon Valley Bank. In fact, we're seeing lower loans and lease uh, amounts and outstanding balances. And it continues to be commercial and industrial loans. So banks don't want to lend to companies. But what's really interesting in loans and leases is that banks, they're not cutting back on commercial real estate loans, but they're not, at the same time, they're also not lending in commercial real estate loans. It's almost like they're afraid to do anything. Unlike commercial industrial loans, which are, which they're they're calling in and maturing and expiring and letting them letting them go lower, it's almost as if the banking system is afraid to even do anything about commercial real estate, lest it triggers the avalanche of problems that we all know are coming. So instead, what we have is a sort of credit strike in commercial real estate loans, where commercial real estate loans have been largely sideways ever since Silicon Valley Bank failed in March. And the more it goes sideways, the more banks just sort of hang on, hoping everything magically fixes itself. The more the economy gets weak, especially especially considering the credit crunch that's developing, the more tightly wound that spring becomes. And eventually when it releases, we won't just see a small, a little reaction. We're going to see a much bigger reaction, which is why we keep hearing reports of governments trying to guide banks into working with their good standing customers on commercial real estate loans to do everything they possibly can to make sure to try to cushion the blow that we all know is inevitably coming because the credit crunch is developing the credit crunch will not go away and it doesn't matter what the federal reserve does or what the government does we see that on the liability side as well as the asset side but back on the asset side not only do we have lower loans, we have lower overall securities and rising cash balances. Banks are holding liquidity, lessons of Bear Stearns. They're still acting on it. Now, more than three and a half months since it all started, almost four months now 
since it first erupted. Cash was up $67 billion in the latest week, on top of $21 billion that was added in the week before. So almost over $80 billion, almost $90 billion in additional cash in the latest, in the latest two weeks, which that's a defensive measure. Where did that cash come from? Well, it came from borrowing, which that's not a good sign. We don't exactly know who they were borrowing from. Maybe it was from the bond market, though more than likely, I believe there's some federal home loan bank advances in there. They also borrowed from their foreign offices, about $60 billion in each of those, which means there's a discrepancy between assets and liabilities, which can happen on a weekly basis. But either way, what we're seeing in the H8 data is the lessons of Bear Stearns. Even now, the first week in July or the end of last week of uh, up to June, the lessons of Bear Stearns: high cash and collateral cushions, de-risking their uh, balance sheets, and less hedging than normal, but still lots of hedging. Banks are being defensive because they need to be defensive, and. They need to be defensive because we don't actually know, we don't, we haven't seen even the start of the commercial real estate problem and well as what any, what, what other uh, problems might be lurking in the balance sheets too. Maybe there's other things we should be worried about as well. Credit crunch in the United States, that's continuing. Weaker labor market than people were hoping for. Japan, oh boy. Who knows what's going on there? It doesn't look to be very good. Europe, we know, has stumbled badly. China's reopening isn't just failing. China's being pulled further and further into the global recession. So Saudi Arabia cutting production again actually makes some sense. And even then, this, these cumulative production cuts don't seem to be having much of an impact in terms of oil prices or even on the WTI futures curve, which is only moderately back into backwardation. And the reason is global recession, a global recession whose potential at the very least, at the, the best case is a mild one. That's where you get, that's where you go from mild recession to holy crap, these curves are massively inverted for a reason. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, huge thank you, Eurodollar University subscribers, Markets Insider Pro research subscribers, and of course, our Eurodollar University members, all of you, thank you very much. And until next time, take care.